Friends, let's welcome Professor Selpe. Hi. Hi. How you doing? I'm all right. How are okay. you? Okay. Do you need Jacob to throw out the clean? I'm fine. You're, you're good? Yeah. You're ready? Okay. He knows. She's back up. Good. How long have you taught at Calvin? 23 years. Wow. I'm getting used to it. Yeah. Yes. Yes, clap for that. 23 years. Older than most of you. Yeah. Uh, this morning, one of the four-year-olds looked at me at the graham cracker table. Well, it's pretzels now. But, and he said, you're old. And I said, why do you have to bring that up? And he said, because of the way you look. Here we are. Uh, yeah, they're so truthful. Wise, though. Old and wise. Yes. Thanks. Those go together. Thank you. In scripture. Thank you. Old they is do. always partnered with wisdom. Yeah. Gray hair is a sign of wisdom, they say. Crowned, thank you. Yes, Erica, crowned. Crowned. And the reason we have you here is because you are wise, because you are crowned with wisdom. We'll see. Yeah, no, I know. Karen, I can call her Karen. Karen's in my, uh, has been a faithful member of my Bible study on campus for as long as we've had one. Yeah. And, uh, I can always know that if there's ever a lull in conversation, Karen will speak, which is awesome. That because will surprise everyone. I know. Because when you're, when you're with, it's a Bible study for faculty women, and every now and then, you know, we get a little more of the introverts in the room, and we need a, little, well, a few more extroverts in the room, and that's why I love having Karen for many things, but she's wise. But we're having you here tonight to talk about a particular event and season in your life, so I'm just going to let you tell the story and then I'll kind of come alongside. Okay. Um, I was, well, so I have to tell you, my dad, whose name was Walter, unfortunately, that's another story. Um, I mean, <laughs> he was going to be the all-American boy, so instead of naming him Valdemar Jr., they named him Walter. Um, anyway, that might come up. Um, I was very close to my dad. He started seminary when I was about two and a half, and so he babysat a lot for me in the evenings, and, and so we spent a lot of time together. When I was growing up, I had piano lessons at the church downtown, and so he'd take me down with him in the morning. We'd have about three hours together every Saturday. So we were close. We were a lot alike. Um, in my mid-20s, I had come to realize that a lot of my worst traits, as well as some of my best ones, came from my dad. My dad was a very, uh, I would say, generally well-liked guy. He had a good sense of humor. He was very patient, much more than I am. He was fun. And um, so, yeah. Um, I was in my late 20s. I was teaching high school, and our high school team made it to the state finals, football team. And so several teachers and I decided it'd be fun to go up to Toledo for the weekend and um, watch the game. And so my parents had a full-size van. I asked Dad if I could borrow it. He gave me a driving test. I had to parallel park it, and I had to back it into a pole and hit the pole so I would know how long the van stuck out in the back. <laughs> I passed the test. Um, anyway, uh, I had been eh, pretty busy. I, had, I lived about 30 miles from my parents, and so I saw them probably at least <clears throat> once a month. And having established my independence and adulthood for the first five years of my teaching career, I had recently begun bringing my laundry to their house to do. Did it myself. It's just a matter of avoiding the laundromat. So dad had made some jokes about my looking in on my elderly parents and taking good care of them. He was younger then than I am now, and even though I'm old, I'm not very old, so you need to know that. Um, 
So anyway, I saw my parents quite a bit. I had, uh, in fall, been pretty busy. I had bailed out on a couple of visits with them. And uh, the week before, I was supposed to go pick up the van, and I was really, really busy. And so my friend Drew said, well, he'd go over. He liked my dad. He'd drive over and get the van. So we took the van. We went to, to uh, Toledo. We went to the football game. And we were supposed to come back that Saturday night, drop off all our friends in Springfield, and drive over to have dinner with my parents. When we got uh, back to Springfield, we were running a little bit late, and we debated whether to call and let them know we were late or just get going, and this was in the day before cell phones, so we got going. We pulled onto my parents' street. My folks lived on a corner. It was dark, and the lights were on in the house, top to bottom, every floor, and there were cars all over the place. And as we got closer, there was a police car on the street, and so we made a couple jokes about my folks having a wild party. Pulled into the driveway, I got out of the car, and one of my dad's friends came out into the driveway, and he said, your dad's heart? And I said, what's wrong? My dad had a heart attack? He said, he's gone. And I thought, well, no, that doesn't make any sense. Heart attacks, I understand, but my dad's a young guy. My mom came out the back door looking smaller than she'd ever looked. I don't know how to explain that, but she was tiny. And she came out and put her arms around me and walked me into the house. Um, so yeah, my dad had uh, eaten dinner, gone up to the attic to record. He would record his sermons. He had a little tape ministry, and so he'd record his sermons with a hymn, a recorded hymn and scripture, and, and take those to the shut-ins. And so he um, had, it was the week before Thanksgiving. This was the Saturday before Thanksgiving. He had gotten all his sermons done for Thanksgiving Eve, Thanksgiving, and Sunday so that he could spend time with the family Thanksgiving Day, and he had recorded the last of them, hmm. fell out of his chair, and mom went up to tell him he had a phone call and found him on the floor. Um, this was unfathomable to me, and I, I remember we, we called my brother, who was, had just gotten married and was living in Maryland, and, and uh, called another aunt or something, and she, I guess, contacted the rest of the family. And I said, well, I'll stay there. And so Drew handed me a wad of cash that he'd collected for gas money, and he said, if they freeze the accounts, you'll need cash. And he, he went on home, called me the next day to say that he'd gotten my key from the landlord, taken care of all the apartment stuff, called the car, called the school, gotten subs and everything. Meanwhile, back at our house, I, um, I set up a cot in my mom's room. Mm. And I was pretty wiped out from the weekend, and it was pretty late by the time everyone dispersed. And so um, I said, I'm going to go up to bed. Are you coming up? And mom said, I'll be up in a little while. I need to bake some bread. You've got bread ready to bake. OK? Thanksgiving was coming. I woke up the next morning, and she hadn't been upstairs. And I went down, and she baked bread all night. We had a lot of bread for Thanksgiving. And she said, we got to go to church. It was 6 in the morning or something. I said, Mom, I don't know if we can do that. And she said, your dad would want us to. If we don't go now, it's going to get harder. We'll go to the early service. There won't be that many people there. Um, they'd found a fill-in pastor who was an old friend of my dad's, and that was, it was kind of, it was, it was a rough morning, but a good one. And um, so, yeah, we had my dad's memorial service on the day before Thanksgiving. We had family come in from all over, which was kind of beautiful and heartbreaking and wonderful. Um, had the service, had Thanksgiving. Um, 
watched the video. My dad was a pastor. My dad had done my brother's wedding, and my mom's aunt and uncle, who couldn't come for the wedding, um, had come up for the service. And so we all watched the wedding video that night. And the very last thing in the wedding video, the camera off to the side a little, was my dad walking out, smiled and waved to the camera. <laughs> um, so, yeah, um, so that's how I lost my dad. Um, I'll add to that that uh, probably the most comforting thing that happened in the whole sequence of events there was that our 80-something-year-old former pastor, who had been my dad's pastor as a kid and had baptized me and stuff, he came to the viewing, and he came up, and here's this wise old pastor, and he takes my hand and he said, when I get to heaven, God's going to have some explaining to do. <laughs> and. I didn't realize at the time how important that was going to be for me, and, and I guess we'll talk more about that. But for a long time, my only prayer was, God, do whatever you're going to do. Mm -hmm. I got to where I could say the Lord's Prayer. That was about it. But um, I was angry. Mm -hmm. so. What did you want from God? I wanted my dad back. Yeah. I mean, period. Uh, yeah. I, don't, I think it was a long time before I even wanted a rational explanation. I did feel, you ever have that clarity where God's just screwed up a little bit and you're willing to give him another chance? <laughs> Careful about that, but um, yeah. I mean, there was some arrogance in that, right? But no, I absolutely, I wanted my dad back. People needed him, not just me, um, people in the congregation. There were kids, all kinds of teenagers who looked mm -hmm. up to him. My uncles had been really brought to faith through him and they needed him. Uh, I had a cousin who was just, just getting old enough to begin to doubt his faith and have some really interesting questions, and he needed my dad. So it didn't make any sense to me. Mm -hmm. So I wanted a retraction. Mm -hmm. And I'm guessing still do. Yeah, maybe. Um, I, I'd be okay with that. Mm -hmm. um, I also wanted... Um, I guess some reassurance that God understood why this was not okay with me. Hmm. So. Yeah. So if we think about this as like a giant boulder thrown into the pond, what were the ripple effects as far as faith, church life, what do I want to be when I grew up? Like, how did this kind of ripple out into all of those things? I, I think it's an astonishing thing that while I'd had doubts about God's existence, at various points throughout my life, I don't know that that came into play there much at all. I'm sure there were moments where I thought, well, this doesn't make sense, and a loving God wouldn't let this. But for me, the questions, and for my mom, too, the questions were more like, why would God do this? Um, and in a way, almost that wrestling, that kind of sense of arguing, maybe gave me a more clear sense of God's reality there. As far as what I wanted to do, um, I don't know if it changed. I think by that time I was in the habit of being very involved with church. I had been applying to grad schools. I knew I'd be leaving, and so grad school was a, you know, a new place and a new situation, new community and new church, all that. Um, that was actually that was weird because I went and then was in communities where nobody had ever known my dad, mm. and I wasn't the preacher's kid, and I wasn't mm. the 
daughter of that pastor that people have met, or the, and so there was no, there was no sense of um, people understanding him as a part of my identity. Um, I, I think it's, I mean, it's been, I've been almost without him as long as I've been with him now in my life, but mm. I think coming to Calvin, I kept thinking, boy, I'd love to be able to talk to dad about this decision to take this job or even whether I should. We were Lutheran, ELCA Lutheran. And um, yeah, Calvin, I'd never heard of the Christian Reformed. I looked it up in the encyclopedia. <laughs> um, I knew some Calvin people and that got me straight now. But Martin Marty came. Martin Marty's a great Lutheran church historian and he came to speak at Calvin. He's well known in the Lutheran church. And I met him, and he's, this was my first year, and he said, oh, Calvin's a good place for a Lutheran. And I called my mom, and she said, oh, thank God. I always wondered what your father would think. <laughs> <laughs> Martin Marty's a good stand-in for that. He is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. What did others do, um, both in the immediate aftermath and then later, that helped? That helped. Um, there were people who came into my life or had just come into my life, and maybe were only part of it for a little while. Mm-hmm. A, a, a camp counselor I'd had as a kid, we had recently gotten reconnected through the camp board, and, and, uh, and we'd gotten really reacquainted, and, and her husband then was a, a pastor, and they became really important to me for just that little while. Um, and, and there were some other things like that. There was that, by the way, if, if you've lost someone, you, you will have experienced this, and if you don't, you will. You have all these thoughts for months like, oh, I need to remember to tell dad that I saw so-and-so at his funeral. And then you kind of go, oh, wait, yeah. Um, but yeah, so there were these, these people that I knew even at the time, and as mad as I was at God, that God was sending to be in place for me, that I, that I wasn't gonna feel lost or alone. Um, people with wisdom and people who could uh, welcome me into the fellowship of people who have lost fathers um, and do stuff. I mean, even my friend Drew, who was not in some ways that great a friend typically, just, he knew, he had lost his dad and he mm-hmm. knew uh, and he called every day for a while and sort of said, are you thinking about this? Are you thinking about this? He said, one of the first things he said, did you, have you been thinking about what would have happened if we'd called before we'd gone to the house? And I said, oh my yes. He said, stop. You can't, you can't change what happened. And don't think about it. Which is surprisingly helpful advice. Um, so yeah, I, I, um, I can't think of other specific examples, but there were these people that just dropped in when they needed to be there. Hmm. And, and some of them kind of faded away later or whatever, so. Um, even a note, I got notes and letters. I got a note from my fifth grade teacher. I hadn't been in touch with her since sixth grade. Mm-hmm. That means everything, and I'm poor at doing that for other people, but I, but I can tell you that even, even a brief note, even a quick, just I'm thinking about you, is, is so powerful. Mm-hmm. Uh, there are also some friends who were willing to, um, I think again, acknowledge the place for the pain and the anger and the sense of loss, and yes, we can grieve. Again, I mean, I go back to that, God's gonna have some explaining to do. Um, 
you're, there's no question, and I, and I know we're going to sing it, there was no question that um, my dad was going to be fine uh, for all the saints we're going to sing later, and that's, I, I love that story. I was, I was pretty overcome this morning at church. It was a story of Lazarus uh, being raised from the dead, and the hymn and everything just choked me up, and I found in the bathroom looking for tissues, all kinds of people looking for tissues, and so that... It wasn't the grief, it's that kind of overwhelming sense of, of joy and gratitude for how you know the story's going to end. Mm-hmm. But you still have that selfish sense of loss. Mm-hmm. I don't think it's selfish. Well, it is. Um, so, yeah, actually, my grandmother told me my great-grandfather had said, when I die, if you grieve, you're not grieving for me. I'm going to heaven. You're, you're just being selfish. I mean, he, I guess, was gentle about that, um, but <laughs> grandmother um, felt that it was true, and actually, when she died, I felt pretty selfish, too. Uh, it is. I mean, not in a horrible way, but that what we're grieving is what, what, what we're missing and what we have to celebrate. Although, my mom's, did I say this already? My mom said, how can, how can your dad be happy in heaven if he knows how, mm. how deeply we're grieving on earth? Mm-hmm. I don't, there's this time and eternity thing. I don't know. Really, we're gonna. It's math, I think. <laughs> <laughs> we said that was another. My, so, Dad had always been the resident family theologian. Needless to say, and so Mom and I had all kinds of conversations where we were just sort of hmm. speculating and wondering. And I'm thankful that I have dozens of wonderful pastors in my life um, that I could ask. Mm-hmm. So. What did people do that wasn't helpful or even maybe hurtful? Um, to some degree, there are folks who just never, they don't acknowledge it or they don't bring it up. Um, I, had, I had one good friend who didn't, didn't really even acknowledge the reality of it. And I mean, he, it wasn't like we saw each other every day. It was a long distance kind of friendship. But um, Seven or eight months later, I, I had a car wreck, minor accident. It was kind of irritating, and I was talking to him. He's like, oh, yeah, well, that's pretty common. You know, within months after a, 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 you know, a devastating loss, you're much more likely to have a car accident. And I was like, okay, so you were aware of this. Um, also, thanks for that insight. Yeah, really, yeah. Tell my insurance company. Um, and I think, I'm going to be careful how I say this, and you can you know, like, People want to say, oh, he's in a better place. God must have wanted him very much. And, and there were some people who would say, okay, this is probably bad theology, but, you know, maybe God did want him a lot. Like, I don't know if it's good theology or not, it's but not, not we theology. still lost him. Um, it's not good theology. And the ones who <laughs> it was his time, and I think, yeah, I don't, I don't think my dad would have seen it that way either. Quite frankly, he had unfinished business. Um, so, yeah, I guess that was it. Oh, I have to say one more good thing, because you yeah. need practical advice. Uh, my brother's in-laws showed up with five boxes of Kleenex, hmm. which is exactly what you need if you're going to be weeping quite a bit. Mm-hmm. So that's a good thing. Mm-hmm. Kind of beats out the tuna noodle casserole. It was lasagna. Ah. It was lasagna. Lots it was of lasagna. all lasagna. And ah. mom couldn't eat lasagna for weeks because that was what they'd had for dinner. and. Um, when you die, things happen in your body, one of which is that you lose some of your dinner, maybe. And so 
mom associated lasagna with my dead dad, and so that stayed in the freezer for a very long time. Mm -hmm. I like it now. Yeah. Yeah. Tuna neuter cow. Is that the uh, Christian yeah, no, reform version? Done. Yeah. Oh, casserole generally. Yes. Casserole. Food items. is good. Food is good. And, Food is and good. Helpful. Yes. Yep. Yep. I've also found that um, when you're in grief, you can't really make decisions. Yeah. And you're plunged immediately often into like. Uh, when's the funeral going to be? What hymns do you want at the funeral? Where do you want to bury him? What do you want to bury him in? What does the casket have to be? What do you want to choose for the vault? What do you want to put on oh the tombstone? Oh my gosh, and he'll be so much more comfortable in this casket. And we're like, yep, yeah, okay, we do know that that doesn't mm -hmm. matter. Yep. <laughs> yep. But you're just, you're just like assaulted by all of these decisions that immediately need to be made. So if you have not yet, and I realize you're only in your 19, 20, 20, if you haven't yet made your funeral plan, if you haven't like written some stuff down, do that. And if your parents haven't done it, would you ask them please to do it? Here's the thing, folks. Most of you will bury your parents. That's the way you want it to be. You don't want them to bury you. You're going to bury your parents. And there is something to knowing what, how, how what the they want to celebrate it. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, yeah. We, yeah, my brother and I knew instantly what hymns had to be sung. There was mm -hmm. no quiet. I don't even know that we discussed that explicitly, but my dad ran a few funerals. Um, <laughs> yeah, clergy kind of, we, yeah. yeah, we kind of lean that way. We yeah, knew, actually. We have that, strong feelings yeah, about Yeah, funerals. we knew how that was supposed to go. Yeah. Um, my mom has planned her, her uh, stuff, and uh, my aunt, passed away last fall and she had planned everything to the degree we had a gathering at the house afterwards and somebody said to my cousin this is a pretty good pretty good shindig you put on you know for and, uh, she, and my cousin said yeah but the guest of honor would be really angry that she's not here mm-hmm well, mm yeah but yeah you do it's I mean it sounds maudlin or something but uh, it's it is good to sort of talk even if it's just speculative so mm -hmm. how, what would be the perfect funeral for you. Mm -hmm. Yep. Yep. Do it now when there's no like pending need. Makes things a lot easier. What do you know now because of that experience 25 years ago? 20, it's almost 30 years. Yeah. Um, I know, I, I guess I knew it then, I know that I don't get to decide how God's going to do stuff. Hmm. I know, I have, I have more trust now that, there, that it does make sense in some way that I can't yet understand. Um, I can see good things that have come out of my ability to, my having experienced that, that I can empathize with people uh, a little better about some things. Um, I know, I know, uh, and I think when, when Pastor Z said, you know, expressed his, his demand for an explanation, Ellie Vassell said here at Calvin years ago, in my tradition, it's okay to argue with God. And I know that's true. You're going to lose the argument. <laughs> but that's part of a real, honest, and intimate relationship. And, and one thing I'll say about my dad, I kn we knew each other really well. We were very close, um, and sometimes that caused a lot of friction, and sometimes it caused a lot of... Um, 
there's a word, and I'm an English teacher, I should know, when, when you all just kind of get along and everybody understands everybody. Um, I don't, there weren't, I didn't feel like there were unfinished conversations or regrets I'd had. I, I had left often, my dad would fall asleep and have a nap in the afternoon and I would leave and need to get home and I wouldn't wake him up to say goodbye to him because I never liked to wake him up. He, he, he woke up very jittery um, and when I was really little I, di I didn't like to do that. So I left a lot without saying goodbye, but I never felt I never had to feel that he didn't know that I loved him or anything like that. And, and I will say this, I mean, if, if that's in question with relationships that matter to you, you need to make sure that it's known, your, mm -hmm. your love and, and affection for one another. Um, so yeah, I know that part of an intimate relationship is arguing and disagreeing and having heard the other enough to trust them, even when you don't agree with them. Mm. That's timely. Hope so. Yes, yes. Is there anything you want to be sure that they hear? I, th I think maybe I've said everything that I mm -hmm. need to make sure you hear. Though you're welcome to, I mean, you're welcome to talk with me anytime, ask me questions, or tell me things. What scripture passages helped? So I, um, at the time, as I say, I was really, I, I didn't even want to put, open the Bible. I mean, it wasn't, I've never, the opening the Bible at random has never worked terribly well for me. And um, so uh, I, I probably gravitated toward those sort of Job-like, you know, moments where people are, throwing little tantrums. Um, and Psalm 13, especially the first part of Psalm Lament. 13, resonated with me to some degree. Um, the, yeah, Job, um, the bit where God gets sort of sarcastic and goes, were you there when I made the earth? Were you there when I created the stars? Were you there when I did this? You know, and I, I kind of had that in mind. Um, but later, uh, Psalm 139, and I never, I didn't see the connection for a long time. Hmm. Um, but it's about God knowing us deeply and intimately. And I think in the sense of having lost someone who was very close to me and understood me really, really well, I had mm. all the deeper need for God. And I think not having someone physically present makes a kind of spiritual or emotional connection all the more important. Mm. And so that was true with my dad. It was also true with God. The Lazarus story this morning, um, I, I would hear stories like that and say, well, need for Lazarus, where was Jesus when my dad died, right? Mm -hmm. um, we're uh, off a few thousand years for this to take place. Um, I get the big picture, I understand the big ending of the story, but right now, f presence is important. So Psalm 139 um, ha became and has become really, really important to me to recognize that even when I don't understand the mind of God, mm. God understands the mind of me and of everyone else. Mm -hmm. So being known, I think, being known and understood is hugely important to all of us. Mm -hmm. And that's why that's mattered a lot. Good. Thank you. Okay. We're going to take a look at Psalm 139 for a minute. Let's thank Professor Salkin. Turn with me, this will be brief. Turn with me to Psalm 139, page 503. 
What we're going to do for each one of these testimonies is that I've asked uh, the person in advance for a scripture passage or two or three that, that have helped them along. And then we're going to look at that so that we can take that passage and carry it with us. So that it's not just something that was good for that person, but it's a gift that that person then gives to us. Hear the word of the Lord from Psalm 139. O Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from far away. You search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, O Lord, you know it completely. You hem me in behind and before and lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It's so high that I cannot attain it. Where can I go from your spirit or where can I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and settle at the farthest limits of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me fast. If I say, Surely the darkness shall cover me, and the light around me become night. Even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is as bright as the day, for darkness is as light to you. For it was you who formed my inward parts. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works, that I know very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes beheld my unformed substance. In your book were written all the days that were formed for me when none of them as yet existed. How weighty to me are your thoughts, O God. How vast is the sum of them. I try to count them. They're more than the sand. I come to the end. I'm still with you. Oh, that you would kill the wicked, O God and that the bloodthirsty would depart from me, those who speak of you maliciously and lift themselves up against you for evil. Do I not hate those who hate you, O Lord, and do I not loathe those who rise up against you? I hate them with perfect hatred. I count them my enemies. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Test me and know my thoughts. See if there is any wicked way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. This is the word of the Lord. So as you can see in this psalm, the psalmist is coming to understand that his life is held, that every aspect, every coming, every going, every word is held in the hands of God, that everything that he does is known by and God is present for. Isn't that amazing? There was a commentator, John Goldengay, who put it this way. He said, this psalm basically says, you have set my destiny within your purposes. You have set my destiny within your purposes. This psalmist is saying, all that I have 
It's you. You're in it. You're woven right through all of it. My destiny is in your purposes. Or another way to say is my story fits into your big story. My little story is part of your big story. That's amazing. And it's especially amazing because we know that God's big story, as Dr. Salpe said, we know how that one ends, right? We know that this is a story that is about resurrection and it's about redemption and renewal. We know that the one who came as a babe in the manger and died on the cross and rose again from the dead and ascended into heaven will come back. Will come back. And the dead in Christ, as Paul says, will rise first. That's what's going to happen. That's what we believe. That's the big story. And our little stories, they fit into that big story. And that's how we can keep going after deep loss. And that's also how we get to kind of wrestle with God. You know, I think we forget sometimes that the name Israel, it means the one who wrestles with God. Like, that's the identity of the people of God. We wrestle with God. And this psalmist understands that, understands that wrestling, understands like every now and then I want to get away from you, but you're still there. Like you're always there. And I think if the psalm ended at verse 18, it would be like, oh, that's such a lovely psalm. That's so beautiful. But then he has this like, oh, that you would kill the wicked, oh God. And we're like, wait, what? What's happening? What's going on right now? But I think we know, don't we, that the more we try to understand our God, through worship, through devotion, through discipleship, through scripture reading, through worship and prayer, the more we become accustomed to God and we dwell in God and God dwells in us, the more the evil of this world is just simply offensive to us. Right? It's like if you spend all morning in prayer or devotion or worship or if you come next Saturday to carry the love and you're invited and, you're, and then someone on the way out the door maybe or you pass somebody on the street and they're just cussing up a storm, it just kind of, it hits you, right? It's like, the, this is just other. This is just, and the more we shape our lives around who God is and the fact that he holds us in his hands, the more we begin to hate what God hates and the more we begin to love what God loves. And so this, although it seems like a really weird turn here at verse 19, it's actually kind of the natural outgrowth of somebody who is understanding who they are in Christ, who they are shaped by the triune God, that they get to the point they're like, just, would you just do away with evil, please? Would you just... Would you just do away with car accidents, please? Would you just do away with cancer, please? Would you just do away with mental health issues, please? Would you just, would you just do away with evil dictators, please? Oh, that you would just do away with the wicked. I just, I can't wait, God, until the things that you hate are no more. So the psalmist comes to the end and he says, I'm all in with you. I'm on your team because you... You are mine. And he ends by saying, not only am I all in with you, but Lord, keep working in me. Because the wickedness isn't just out there. The wickedness can also be right in here. 
So Lord, search me and try me and see if there's any wicked way in me. And then he says, now lead me in the way everlasting. Bring me back to the beginning of the psalm. I say, oh Lord, search me, know me. Hold my hand day by day. Lead me in the way everlasting. Lead me home. That's a gift of this psalm.